Hi, everybody. Big E here. Welcome back to the podcast. This is law for Virginia law enforcement officers. And we're talking about law. What do you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities? Last episode, we talked about getting financial records. And this episode, which is episode 57, we're going to talk some more about how to get financial records when you're doing an investigation, any kind of investigation, uh, not just into fraud or identity fraud, but, you know, violent crimes, sexual assaults. I mean, let's face it, the information you can get from someone's financial records in a lot of ways is more useful than you could get from electronic records from, you know, somebody's cell phone movements or uh, Facebook or whatever. Uh, so how do you get these records? Last episode, we talked about the means under Virginia law that existed, search warrants and court orders and so on. But in today's episode, I want to talk to you about some methods that I think people are not as familiar with, unfortunately, even though they're very, very powerful tools uh, in the right circumstances. And I'm going to talk about what is available under the Bank Secrecy Act uh, and uh, the various related laws in federal law. I'm going to talk specifically about uh, Section 314 of the USA Patriot Act and the requirement for suspicious activity reports and your ability to get that information. So what am I talking about here? Well, to start with, I'm going to talk about Section 314 information requests, which I think is a small area uh, and it's interesting to law enforcement. I'm going to put that off to the end um, because that's a very specific kind of request. Uh, but I'm going to talk first about the the SAR requirement, about what, what what is a suspicious activity report. And I think if I went out and pulled law enforcement officers, if I pulled in, you know, 100 law enforcement officers, generally in my experience, maybe one of them, maybe two of them, has heard of the SAR requirement and knows what a, a financial suspicious activity report is. And that's, I think for me, that's really unfortunate. Uh, that is, it, it is such a powerful tool for law enforcement officers to use, and it's designed for law enforcement, and yet we almost never take advantage of it. What is the requirement? What is it? Well, you know, you have probably seen, if you go to like a car dealership and it says, you know, we don't take drug money. Well, what does that mean, we don't take drug money, right? Well, this goes back to the 1980s. Uh, where back in the 1980s, uh, you know, the drugs were obviously had become such an incredibly lucrative business that they struggled to deal with the amount of cash that they had. And they had cash in, you know, 10,000, 20,000, hundreds of thousands of dollars. They would basically just go to banks and move the banks, the, the cash into a bank. And clearly banks were aware that there's only, a, you know, there's not, there's not a legitimate form of business where you're just taking in cash in such large volumes in that way, especially when you can't explain what your source of income is. So early on, a requirement was enacted, a currency transaction report requirement was enacted <clears throat> that required banks to, to make a report to the federal government uh, to that there was a individual coming in depositing or engaging in a financial transaction involving more than $10,000 in cash, because cash itself was a suspicious transaction. And immediately, of course, they also incre uh, created an exception for businesses like grocery stores or car washes, uh, those kinds of places that really do legitimately deal in tens of thousands of dollars in cash. You know, if you have like a, a fair that travels around and 
you know, that kind of thing. Obviously, they have a legitimate reason to be dealing in cash. So they could reply for an exception. And of course, immediately, you know, grocery stores and so on has got their exceptions. So they don't fill out these reports. But an individual who doesn't have a cash only business, who then shows up one day and deposits from the $10,000 in cash had to fill out this requirement. Well, pretty soon, as soon as that requirement was enacted, you can imagine, uh, people said, okay, great, I'll just deposit $9,999 today and $9,999 tomorrow and so on. And this became a, a very convenient way to avoid the suspicious activity report recording requirement, excuse me, the, the CTR reporting requirement. And so soon thereafter, <clears throat> the Congress enacted a requirement that banks report that kind of activity and attempt to avoid the reporting requirement. And this was uh, where we got the suspicious activity report. And it was part of the Anti-Money Laundering Act that was enacted in 1992 or thereabouts that the suspicious activity report really uh, took its modern form. The rule nowadays is that if as a result of information uh, that, they, uh, that, that an institution becomes aware of, a financial institution knows or suspects or has reason to suspect that an individual or an entity or organization is involved in or may be involved in money laundering activity, or indeed uh, terrorist activity was included soon thereafter. Uh, money laundering activity, those are what I'm talking about today. And the institution uh, must make a suspicious activity report in accordance with regulations. So when we say a suspicious activity report, what I'm talking about is a report to an institution called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, or FinCEN. It's generally speaking called FinCEN. And this SAR requirement covers banks, casinos, money services businesses like uh, like Sieg or uh, Western Union, uh, securities brokers and dealers, mutual funds, precious metals dealers, uh, credit card companies, loan finance companies, commodities brokers, insurance companies. All of these companies have a requirement to report suspicious financial activity when it appears that somebody's engaged in some kind of money laundering activity. And over the years, that requirement has expanded and uh, the regulations and the law has expanded to require that banks report suspicious activity involving human trafficking, involving uh, elder fraud and elder exploitation, obviously terrorist activity, right? That kind of thing. So if a bank sees... Um, Let's say, for example, a vulnerable customer, like an elderly customer who uh, has, generally speaking, you know, the same transactions every month, same money comes in, same money comes out, nothing unusual. And then out of nowhere, suddenly the customer comes in and starts doing $10,000 transactions or multiple $5,000 transactions, writing checks to somebody that they've never uh, had written checks before to, or comes into the to the to the uh, institution and they're and then and then they're with somebody that the bank has never seen before, and this person is directing them to write checks for large amounts of money. That's suspicious, right? Now they don't know that it's a crime. It could be a perfectly legitimate explanation, but the standard is: do they suspect, or do they have reason to suspect? that this is some kind of unlawful financial activity, right? In that situation, they would have to file a suspicious activity report. Now, by the way, the law also requires them to pick up the phone and call law enforcement where they have knowledge of an immediate violation of the law, right? So they have ongoing violations or ongoing uh, uh, um, obligations, but that's a separate obligation. I'm going to talk about that another time. The point here is that 
you know, that for decades now, and originally it was the Anunzio Wiley Anti-Money Laundering Act that required banks to make these filings. By the time 2001 rolls around, the USA Patriot Act is passed, uh, again, 20 years ago uh, this weekend, uh, after 9-11, the Patriot Act expanded the SAR requirement to institutions like credit unions, thrifts, securities, and so on, and expanded law enforcement access to that information as well. So nowadays, if you were to go looking for SARS, you would find SARS regarding, obviously, the money structuring, right? The $9,999 transactions, the money laundering uh, reports, terrorist financing, but also bribery, check fraud, check kiting, theft, embezzlement, false statements to obtain money or credit, uh, misuse of positions, self-dealing, wire transfer fraud, loan fraud, computer intrusions, counterfeit check and instrument, counterfeit debit cards, uh, debit credit card fraud, mysterious disappearances, identity theft are all instances where banks would be required to report that they suspect that unlawful financial activity is, uh, is taking place. And when they make these reports, they get a safe harbor, they get protection under federal law from any kind of uh, you know, lawsuit or malicious prosecution or anything like that, because again, they have a requirement under the law to file this when they suspect or have reason to suspect that there's some legal violation going on. And so they have to make a, re a report any time they have a criminal violation involving any amount, right? We've gone long past this $10,000 requirement. Uh, if they can identify a suspect and the violation is more than $5,000, then they definitely need to uh, to file a report. Um, but if they have a, a criminal violation involving insider abuse and somebody inside the institution, they have to report it whether it's $100 or $200. Um, <clears throat> so they're, they're very strict requirements. And um, they have to report when there is no business or apparent lawful purpose for a transaction. Or even indeed when it's not the type of transaction that a particular customer would normally be expected to engage in and there's no explanation for it after examining it. And transactions that they're reporting to FinCEN, when I say a transaction, I'm talking about deposits, withdrawals, transfer between accounts, <clears throat> exchanges of currency, extensions of credit, um, buying stocks, bonds, certificates of deposit, uh, buying monetary instruments, any kind of payment transfer delivery through a bank. When that requirement hits and they see that suspicious activity, the bank, the financial institution, the securities broker, the um, money transmitter, they have 30 days to file that report. They must file that report with FinCEN within 30 days. And along with that report, and this is crucial, they are required to, uh, to store supporting documentation regarding that transaction. So if, for example, they have a customer who, again, elderly customer is being exploited, uh, they have a bank account with the account for many, with the bank for many years, and then all of a sudden the customer engages in these weird transactions that have no explanation, transferring large amounts of money to some stranger. Um, they ask her about it and she doesn't want to talk about it and the person is there with her at the bank and so on. So clearly something is going on, something unusual is going on, or at least they have reason to suspect something's going on. Maybe there's a good explanation, but you know, they're concerned. They have 30 days to file that report and then they have to set aside the supporting documentation, the bank statements, the transactions themselves, any information that they have about the suspicious transactions, and they have to hold on to that information. Now, 
What does that mean for you? Everything that I've just said, what does that mean for you as a law enforcement officer? Well, again, there's this institution called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, and they're holding on to all these suspicious activity reports from banks and financial institutions. Now, FinCEN doesn't proactively pick up the phone and reach out and call law enforcement agencies, local law enforcement agencies, and say, hey, I've got this report that Mrs. Jones is being potentially exploited by somebody. You should probably look into it and check on her and make sure she's okay. FinCEN is a clearinghouse for this information. They store this information. But it's not their job to read these reports and tell local law enforcement about them. Now, traditionally, before 9-11, before the USA Patriot Act, it was generally considered to be the responsibility of the IRS to review these reports. And, of course, that comes back goes back to the 1980s when all of these regulations were put into effect. The idea was the IRS would be the, the ideal agency to look at people who were <clears throat> engaging in you know, tens of thousands of dollars of cash transactions with no apparent business purpose and no reportable income on their taxes, right? So this is exactly what IRS was designed to do. But as the SAR requirement expanded to all these different types of activities, right, <clears throat> to, you know, ID fraud and check fraud and, um, you know, financial exploitation and, you know, um, and, and, and check hiding and theft and embezzlement and false statement, all this stuff, well, we're getting long, long, far, far past what IRS's mission is. And so around 9-11, groups started to pop, groups of law enforcement officers started to pop up around the United States. And in fact, I was um, at one of the early meetings where one of these groups popped up in Northern Virginia and, and worked with them uh, in the beginning when they started their first group. They were one of the first, you know, three or four groups in the United States. Uh, Detroit had a group uh, as well, a bunch of different groups around the country that would bring law enforcement agencies together, state and federal, and read the suspicious activity reports from their jurisdiction. Because when you sit down and actually read these reports, right, which you're permitted to do, uh, you read these reports and you say, you know, hey, I know Mrs. Jones, or worse yet, I know the guy who's showing up with Mr. Ms. Jones, because He's been prosecuted many times, and he's somebody who's known for going around and ripping off elderly people or going around and, and scamming people who don't understand the nature of their transactions. Um, and he's got a record, and we've arrested him before, and so on. So him being with Mrs. Jones and getting tens of thousands of dollars from her is, is not only suspicious, it's directly, con uh, uh, directly consistent with his, uh, with his M.O. So these groups would get together and read the SARS. Now, they would have different targets. Sometimes there'd be, oh, let's, let's get together and look for instances of human trafficking. We're concerned about human trafficking. Or let's get together and look at instances of money structuring. Or let's get together and look at instances of terrorist activity. Um, and so everybody had their own mission, what they were looking at. Ultimately, you know, uh, you know, when I worked with the SAR group, our mission was just look for criminal activity uh, of all kinds. So elder fraud, elder exploitation, um, you know, unlawful financial activity, fraud, whatever. We looked at lots of different things. But you quickly find out there's literally hundreds and hundreds of SARs filed, um, you know, in a very small, can be very, can be filed in a very small jurisdiction. Because again, the standard is low. Is it, is it, do I have reason to suspect something suspicious going on? And it's not unusual to have a SAR filed. And and, and say, oh, this, you know, this looks like suspicious. There's no apparent purpose for it. And then you look into it and you say, oh, no, I understand what the purpose for it. There's a perfectly good explanation for it. And you close it and you move on. So how do you get this information? You know, well, if you had a task force, you would probably pair up with a federal agency that was that had access to FinCEN's information. 
But if you're a local law enforcement officer and you say, well, the last thing in the world I need is another responsibility. I don't, I'm not trying to join a task force, right? I'm, I'm a detective. I just work regular cases. Or I'm a patrol officer and I, I just work regular cases in my jurisdiction. Why is it that I'm listening to this? How is this helpful for me if I don't want to join one of these task forces? Well, the question that I want to ask you is, you know, think about the last case that you investigated or, the, or a big case that you investigated in the last few years involving somebody who made a lot of money from their criminal activity. And ask yourself, you know, do you think of all that money that person made and all the transactions that they engaged in, don't you think that somewhere along the line that they drew the suspicion of a bank, a financial institution, a credit union, a wire transmitter like Western Union or Sieg? And wouldn't you have wanted to know what kinds of suspicious financial activity somebody was engaged in and reported to be engaged in by a financial institution. And, and while they're making these reports, I'm guessing you're going out and trying to track down information about their financial transactions. At the same time that the bank, you know, perhaps is screaming and yelling and saying, filing these reports every, you know, 30 days saying, hey, look, we keep seeing suspicious financial activity and nobody's doing anything about it. And the reality is you were doing something, you were trying to investigate, but it was hard for you because you're a local law enforcement officer and you're doing, um, based on subpoenas and search warrants, based on maybe a report from a local citizen and trying to track the information down from the other direction. So how would you get this information? Well, it turns out you have access to it. Uh, you have the ability to get it. And the way that you get it is by making a request through the Fusion Center, the Virginia Fusion Center. Most, uh, Almost all the states in the United States have access to SARS through their Fusion Center. And so if you make a request through the Fusion Center to FinCEN and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking into this particular individual, uh, you know, Dave the, the fraudster, Dave the, um, the, this guy who's going around and stealing from, from elderly people and vulnerable people, um, using a landscaping scheme or a construction fraud scheme. And I would like to know what has been reported about him uh, through financial activity. You can make that request and you can get uh, suspicious activity reports and you can get the currency transaction reports that have been made about Dave. Now, I need to pause for a moment and emphasize to you something very crucial about the SARS if you do get them. If, you do, if somebody does come to you and bring you a suspicious activity report or tell you about a suspicious activity report that's been filed. And that is that, you know, banks are protected. Banks get a, a high level of liability protection for making these reports. And they, it is a very low standard <clears throat> to make a report like this. But in exchange, what people, what is important and, and, and the protection that is built in uh, for customers who get reports filed about them is that these suspicious activity reports are extremely confidential. Disclosing the existence of a suspicious activity report, uh, disclosing the existence of uh, a report of a report like this by a bank of, of activity that may or may not be uh, criminal, uh, is a felony offense in the federal system. And FinCEN and the federal government have prosecuted people before for unlawfully disclosing the existence of a suspicious activity report. And it's a felony for financial institutions. It's a felony for law enforcement officers to disclose the existence of a SAR. And you don't have to have malicious purpose to be prosecuted. It could be something where you just didn't, you know, you just felt like talking about it. You didn't care. You know, this guy's a bad guy and who cares? And you're going to tell everybody he's got a suspicious activity report filed about him. 
Well, that's a felony offense. That's a very serious offense. You have to treat suspicious activity reports with an extremely high level of confidentiality. The kind of confidentiality that you would treat perhaps a confidential informant in a, you know, in a violent criminal street gang, right? You're not going to tell just anybody <clears throat> about the identity of this informant or the, informant, the information the informant gave you. And in fact, you probably were going to protect that informant's identity by locking their name up in a, in, a, in, a full, in, a, in a file cabinet somewhere that only you and your lieutenant have access to. And if somebody asks you on the witness stand for the identity of the informant, you're going to fight tooth and nail and only turn over the identity of that informant when ordered to by a court. And that's the kind of confidentiality that you need to give to suspicious activity reports. If a, if a court... Uh, or a prosecutor or a judge or whoever tries to get you to disclose the existence of a SAR when you don't think you should be doing it or you don't have clear legal authority to do it, FinCEN has a hotline. You call up and they send a team of lawyers down to fight the fight. It's not your job to fight it. It's their job because they have the responsibility under federal law of making sure that these uh, confidentiality requirements get respected. But you treat it like a confidential informant. Now, that having been said, you may ask yourself, okay, great, well then why is the information useful to me, right? So if I if I make a request about Dave the, the fraudster, the guy who's going around and ripping off elderly people and, and vulnerable people with his construction fraud scheme or his landscaping fraud scheme, and I get a bunch of suspicious activity reports from banks and in financial institutions that say, oh yeah, this guy's been engaging in all sorts of financial transactions that are suspicious with all sorts of elderly people all over the area from this bank and this bank, and here's a currency transaction report from thousands of dollars of transaction of cash that he got from this bank. And so now you have all this information. What are you supposed to do with it, right? Well, the first thing I want to tell you that's, that's pretty cool is, uh, the first thing is you can pick up the phone and you can call the bank. And there's a phone number on a SAR and they have to answer the phone and they have to uh, talk to you. And then if you say, hey, I want to see the supporting documentation behind this SAR. I want to see the financial, I want to see the records. I want to see the, the bank statements. I want to see the transactions. I want to see all this information. Not only do they have to give it to you, they have to give it to you without a subpoena or any legal process. Now, again, all this information is confidential. I'm going to get to this in a second. But it's confidential, so it's it's given very freely, but you have a high level of responsibility to keep the information confidential at this point. But they have to give you the information. So they have to answer the phone. They have to talk to you. And they have to give you the supporting documentation. And this is not a six-month-long subpoena search warrant process. This is like they need to email it to you, like, let's get it done, you know, like in the next few days. And generally speaking, people get records back in about a couple of days to a week. Now, that's a pretty fast turnaround for law enforcement. It's incredibly fast for law enforcement. But they have to give you those records. Now, <clears throat> you've got the records in hand. You're reading them. They're like, this is great information. This is bank statements from all sorts of victims who have been exploited all over the place. But again, I'm supposed to keep this information confidential. So what am I supposed to do with it? Well, now is the point where you start doing your police work, right? Where you start saying, okay, well, now let's go out and talk to these victims. Now, if you go out and talk to the victims, you're collecting that information perfectly lawfully and you're in, you're in the clear. Let's go out and get a subpoena or a search warrant for these records. Well, you can do that, fine. And again, anything you get from a subpoena or a search warrant is perfectly admissible in court and you can talk about it all day. <clears throat> now... How do you go about writing a search warrant when your information came from a confidential informant? Well, you write the search warrant like it came from a confidential informant. A confidential informant in, let me know that this individual engaged in a transaction back in May involving another victim who appeared to be elderly or vulnerable. Her account number is blah, blah, blah. Uh, here's the information. I went out to try to visit her, but she talked to me or didn't talk to me or whatever. 
but you treat it like a confidential informant, and that's it. And then you you don't you don't make any more uh, you know a confidential informant who uh, is known to you to be reliable because again they're a bank, they're a financial institution, so they're reliable. But you don't describe anything about them, obviously, and that can be used in a search warrant or affidavit. But again, there's nothing wrong with just going to the bank or going to the teller if it was a transaction with the teller. You just have a conversation with the teller. <clears throat> and there, when you have an independent source for the information, which is I got the records from a search warrant or a subpoena, or I went and visited the bank and talked to the teller, or I went and visited the victim and talked to the victim, then all the information you've got from an independent source, you can talk about all day, every day to the magistrate or the prosecutor or the court or the judge or whatever and get all that information. So you need to find a lawful uh, public way for you to get those records, get that information that you need. But it's a great way to get leads and get pointed in the right direction in the course of a, of a transact in the course of a criminal investigation. So uh, this is a really powerful tool, and I encourage you guys to use it. Now, the other thing I would tell you is that FinCEN also, I said FinCEN doesn't proactively reach out to law enforcement, but they do often proactively reach out to banks and financial institutions. And back at 9-11, when the Patriot Act was passed, they passed something called Section 314, which is a goal to help law enforcement communicate with financial institutions and help financial institutions interact with one another. And so it allowed for limited sharing of information among financial institutions like banks and credit unions and money service businesses and so on. So if you're looking at an individual, individual who's engaged in some kind of money laundering activity or terrorist activity indeed, and you have no idea where they bank, where they keep a financial, uh, where they keep a, um, uh, an account, and you need to find it in a you know pretty significant money laundering case. Somebody's engaged in a fraud scheme or a computer intrusion scheme or an extensive exploitation or human trafficking scheme. You can make a, a request, a one-time request to FinCEN to say, I want you to send out a blast to every financial institution that you regulate, which is a lot, <laughs> uh, and let me know whether you as financial institutions have an account or have engaged in a transaction with this individual in the last six months. And they're required by law to respond within a very short period of time with yes or no. Now, they don't have to tell you what the transactions are. But again, if I know somebody's engaging in human trafficking up and down the East Coast and they're moving uh, people between states and so on and hiding people and bringing people in here, uh, holding other passports and exploiting them in, in my jurisdiction, but they move all over the place and I don't know where they bank or where they are, I can send out that one-time search request and banks will have to respond and say, hey, we, do, we did transactions with this person or we do have an account with this person right now. So if you want information about them, uh, feel free to send us a subpoena or legal process. And that at least tells you where to look, right? So here in this situation, you've already got probable cause the person's committing a criminal offense, but you just don't know where to look for their financial records. Now, you know, uh, you know, First USA Bank of New Jersey responds and says, we have an account with this person. Okay, great. I'm going to send you a search warrant. I'm going to send you a legal, uh, I'm going to send you a subpoena. That's, that's, that oftentimes closes the distance, right? Because I think the most difficult thing about doing a financial uh, investigation, at least back in the old days, was trying to figure out where the person has a financial institution at all, where they have an account, or where they've done transactions. It's not an ongoing duty, right? But they can uh, uh, make that, you know, they can, they can identify that to you, at least, and you can, you know where to send it. Um the other thing that's really interesting about the USA Patriot Act, too, by the way, is that it allows, it allowed in 2001 and, and, and has allowed for the last 20 years financial institutions to share information with each other about people that they suspect are engaging in 
uh, exploitation or money laundering or terrorist activity and so on. Because obviously a big problem, you know, think about your own jurisdiction. You know, somebody goes um, and exploits people and uses an account uh, to to perpetrate fraud on people. And the bank figures it out and says, get out of here. I know what you're trying to do. You're not allowed to bank here anymore. They throw them out. What do they do? They just go across the street to the next bank and start it again. And that next bank becomes a tool for exploitation for a long time. Uh, you know, the Section 314 also allows banks to to team up and share information with each other and say, hey, look out for this guy. He's engaged in some kind of fraud. And the really nice thing about that is that, that it doesn't have to be just a one-time cooperation, that banks can actually team up and create associations. And so you see throughout uh, the D.C. DC area, for example, uh, that there's a, lots of different associations of financial institutions where their bank security officers will get together and meet uh, SAFI, MAVs, and so on. Um, th- there's a Richmond area one, too, I think, down in Tidewater as well, um, where they get together and meet and talk about, hey, this is how, this is the fraud schemes that we're seeing. These are the people who are coming in to perpetrate, to use false checks or false transactions with us. And you need to watch out for them. They'll tell each other, hey, watch out for this, watch out for this. We got hit with this scheme, or we just barely got hit with this guy, or here's this identity fraud scheme that we're seeing a lot of. You know, I really encourage you as law enforcement, these a, these groups exist, and you're welcome to attend their meetings uh, because their meetings are really helpful. It's a great place to learn about what the schemes are that are going on right now, how banks are being targeted, how they're trying to protect their customers. And oh, by the way, they're attended by the security people at the bank who know what's going on. What a great place to make contacts, right? If you don't know anybody at uh, you know, uh, BB&T Bank, right? Well, go to these meetings and you're going to meet face-to-face people with BB&T Bank who care about this stuff, who want to protect their customers. And they get to meet you face-to-face. And that's pretty important for, for doing effective investigations. So it's a little plug right there to check out what your local org- uh, group is. And if you don't know what your group is, or you want to start a group, uh, you know, reach out to me and let me know. Um, you know, I know I know a lot of the groups uh, throughout Virginia, and I'm always happy to help you out if you're looking to, to get to be part of those groups, or just know what they are and go to a meeting. Uh, they're pretty fascinating. They're pretty useful. So some tools today to share with you about how to get financial records as a law enforcement officer in Virginia. Uh, if you didn't check out the last episode, uh, check out that one too. That's episode 56. But from today. Uh, That's what I got for you. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. We're on Apple Podcasts. If you want me to be on something else, hey, reach out to me and say, hey, can you be on this app too? And I'll try to get on there too. But for today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.